you're standing on the next to this pond that suddenly emerged. You throw a pebble into the water and this ripple would start and it got bigger and got bigger before you know it's a tidal wave and then you hit the shoreline and it's a tsunami and it wipes out half of America and it's like wow I did that we were close enough where we could do things like that and actually watch it happen Welcome to Power of Place Stories of the Pacific Northwest I'm Edward Krigsman For today's episode, part two of a two-part series, we continue our conversation with graphic designer Art Chantry as he expands upon his experiences of working within the center of Seattle's global grunge explosion. He'll ruminate on his lifelong passion for graphic design and its distinction from fine art, while also reflecting on politics, place, and the inspirational power of the ordinary. Art's essays on the overlooked contributors to our graphic design culture are collected in A Heretic's History of 20th Century Graphic Design. And he's also the subject of a book by Julie Lasky, Some People Can't Surf. Art has contributed to dozens of published works of fiction and nonfiction, monographs and essays, and he's appeared in films like Hype, Died Young, Stayed Pretty, and Sam Now. And his posters are housed in the collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Smithsonian, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the Louvre. And he's also a medalist at the American Institute of Graphic Design joining the ranks of Edward Tuft, Robert Rauschenberg, Leonard Baskin, and Ben Sean. So let's tune back in to our conversation with graphic designer Art Chantry. Let's drive so Art, tell us more about how your design work evolved in the 1980s. I was at the Rocket. I had been, these were my friends too. I did, I used to lay out Bruce's Sub Pop review column. I did real early Sub Pop records for like Flaming Lips and Hole. Um, the bands like Soundgarden and Mud Honey and stuff, they had their own friends, you know? I, so I ended up working on a lot of stuff. I, some of the bands, I worked on Tad, I worked on Love Battery. Um, I ended up later on working with Mud Honey. But I also did a lot of things like Reverend Horton Heat and Flaming Lips and Hole and things like that that were associated but with weren't they were part of that giant zine network, but they weren't actual sub pop bands. The 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 singles market changed into kind of a comic book level. You could sell three thousand singles. You could manufacture three thousand singles and sell them all because there were three thousand people in America that bought every single record that came out on forty five. Period. So that was always enough to guarantee you could afford the next to put out another single. And that is how Sub Pop was structured. And then they had that Singles of the Month Club, which created a bigger stream of revenue all at once so they could actually put out LPs as well. And it became this kind of seat of your pants operation. That's the way the rocket ran. That's the way all of us lived. That's how we had food. You know, how do you think we paid rent? Hmm. I mean, rents in Seattle has always been high, even when it was low, you know. Another thing you should know about being an artist in Seattle back then was that you couldn't live in your studio. It's not like now you can have lofts and things. That was a zoning issue. And the fire department used it as a way to control punk rock and arts in Seattle. They basically, if they found a hot plate and a bed and a shower in your workspace, they would padlock it. You couldn't live there. So you had to go out and prove that you had another place to live, show them receipts for rent. So you end up having to carry two rents. That was a lot of money for anybody, much less a punk rocker. So you had a lot of group houses. They were like uh, 
boarding houses and people would, you know, their friends would all crash there. Myri actually ran a number of those. She was kind of the den mother for several of those houses over the years up in the U district. Yeah, it was just, it was just this extraordinary time where people like Myri, she always kind of reminded me of a little Judy Garland, little punk rock Judy Garland. And she and Mickey Rooney got together and says, hey, let's put on a show, you know, and blam, they did. And before you know it, you know, they're bringing in Husker Du, you know, they're bringing in Sonic Youth. And it's like, wow, you know, and, you know, they're all buddies and they're, that's how Sonic Youth met Mudhoney and Nirvana, mm. was they came for shows that were bought by these people, and they were there in the crowd, and they are hanging out, and they all got to know each other, you know? It was a networking kind of thing that doesn't happen anymore. Mm. It happens online, but at a distance. Back in those days, it, it was a physical contact that made so much difference. And Sub Pop benefited from that enormously. That was their point of exploitation. That was their market. And... When Nirvana's second record, Nevermind, hit, they thought that was the market it was going to sell to. The initial pressing was 20,000, which was a huge number, you know, for an indie record that was sold on that level. 20,000 units would take them six months to a year or longer to sell. And it was put out on DGC, which is a Geffen label, and Sub Pop figured the only way they'd get any money is if they got their logo on the thing, they'd get a percentage of that income. And Nevermind came out, and it was like, even at the Rocket, we got this tape that came out about two, three weeks before the record that had Soundgarden was releasing Bad Motorfinger, and Nirvana was releasing Nevermind, and we had it on one crappy little cassette, one record on each side. And during production period, one production period, Dennis White came, walked in with this, he goes, hey, New Soundgarden. <laughs> we said, put it on. We listened to it and you're going, hey, this is pretty good. Yeah, wow, Soundgarden. Huh? Boy, they're really coming along, aren't they? Uh, what's the other side? Uh, some friend of Mudhoney's named Nirvana. Oh, yeah, I remember Bleach. Yeah, that was a cool record. Put it on and you're listening to it and everybody got quiet. <laughs> it was like, this is a good record. And then we flip it over, listen to Soundgarden. You go, yeah, okay. Turn it back over, would you? And we ended up just ignoring the Soundgarden side and playing Nirvana over and over and over. And everybody's just kind of gone, Jesus Christ, that's a good record. Holy shit. I mean, it was like, it was like a sea change moment. It was like being hit with a glacier. And for the next six months to a year, that was the only thing you heard on passing car radios. It was everywhere. You couldn't walk into a record store. You couldn't walk into a library or a gas station without it blaring. It was just like, it was like the theme song. And everybody was just, nobody expected that. It was just one of those things that was at the right moment, the right time, and magic happens, you know. And it happened all over the world. And it dragged in this tidal wave of sharks into Seattle trying to buy the next thing. Or they started, you know, marketing these shirts as flannels, you know. We wear these shirts because they're warm and they're cheap and you can get them at a Goodwill for a buck, you know. We wear our combat boots. Then all of a sudden Doc Martens comes in here and sells us Doc Martens. We wore combat boots because you get them for a buck at the Goodwill and that's what we could afford, you know. We wore jeans with holes in the knees because that was what our clothes were like, you know. All of a sudden it became high fashion all over the world, you know. Being fashionable used to mean looking good. Well, thanks to a fad that started in the Pacific Northwest, High fashion now means, well, you decide.
it was just a very, very bizarre moment. I remember one moment at the Rocket, we got, on one day, we had five media crews come in unannounced. It was a deadline day. We were trying to get the issue out, you know? And all of a sudden, we get the New York Times, Rolling Stone, the Christian Science Monitor, um, a local news station, and some Italian fashion magazine. Uh, they didn't speak any English, so we never did figure it out. And they came in with their cameras and the reporters and all this stuff, and they all walked around, took the entire space over, and started interviewing anything that, anybody that looked remotely grungy, you know. And we couldn't kick them out because they didn't speak English. And besides, it was kind of it was a weird thing. We wanted to see what the hell this was. I, I remember I was the one that was stuck with the Italian fashion magazine. They came into my my office, and. You know, I, I said, well, you know, I, I designed these covers, you know, and they go, oh, oh co record covers, you know. And so what they did is they, they took a big pile of my record covers and laid them on the ground and had me sprawl on them, like in a fashion pose. <laughs> I have no idea if they ever used it. I've never seen it. Uh, it's probably for best, you know. But it was, it was crazy, that kind of stuff. We had to make it a rule that media crews could not come into the rocket. And that was the rocket. I mean, the rocket? You know, I was the art director of The Rocket, and an Italian fashion magazine was taking a picture of me in a fashion pose, dressed like this. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the absurdity of it just went off the deep end. So what did it feel like to you to be in the middle of all of this in Seattle at that time? You're standing on the next of this pond that suddenly emerged. You throw a pebble into the water, and this ripple would start, and it got bigger and got bigger. Before you know it, it's a tidal wave. And then you hit this shoreline, and it's a tsunami, and it wipes out half of America. And it's like, wow, I did that. We were close enough where we could do things like that and actually watch it happen. It was extraordinary. We could change American culture with a joke. And everybody did it. And it became... The, one of the most famous ones is the lexicon of grunge that the New York Times printed on the front page. I think they called up The Rocket first, and they said, we want to print an article about grunge, and we want to know the secret hipster language of grunge rockers everywhere. And, you know, the, whoever answered the phone said, oh, no, I, 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 I talked to Sub Pop for that one. And they called Sub Pop, and they I forget who they talked to, but she's a famous name now. And she got the phone call, and she was just as burned out as we were, and it was maybe 10 times more. And she, this one, she just thought it was, yeah, okay. And then she started making up shit on the spot. There were some phrases that she kind of used among her friends. And before you know it, it was like hanging on the flippity-flop meant meeting up with your buddies to go out and have fun. Uh, lame stain was a dork, you know. Wax slacks or jeans with holes in the knees, you know. And she'd given them these weird words. Harsh realm meant bad time, bummer, you know. Um, and they published it on the front page of the New York friggin' Times. <laughs> and we just laughed and laughed and laughed. And, you know, I, I, I designed some T-shirts that another guy put out that used the words on the T-shirts, you know, in grunge colors and grunge type and... You know, people sold them and wore them and laughed and laughed and laughed and had a great time. And then you heard it on the streets. And you'd hear these young kids say, hey, I'm hanging on the flippity flop tonight. You want to go out? And then a TV show shows up on TV called Harsh Realm. Do you remember that? It was kind of a thriller detective show. Harsh Realm was a TV show, you know? From the 
creator of the X-Files, comes the most anticipated new show this year. Welcome to Harsh Realm. Harsh Realm. And before you know it, it turned real. You suddenly had people in Seattle, particularly young kids, very influential, who wanted to be cool and hip, had adopted those made-up words and it became actual slang. Some of those words still walk around out there. You, you still run to people when they say harsh realm, you know, or call somebody a lame stain, you know. And that was a lesson, man. Look what you're watching. You know, when you sit there and tell the media a lie, it becomes real to the culture. That's how Trump got in power. You know, that's how he's doing what he's doing now. We were doing that at grunge. The, the mythology of grunge, the mythology of Sub Pop and Nirvana and Soundgarden and all that stuff, the story that we all think back on, yeah, just some kids wanted to put on a show, you know. That's not the truth. That's not what it was about at all. That's not what it was like at all. That is made up. In fact, the first place I saw that story made up was in a comic book about Soundgarden. You read it and you're reading this story and you're going, oh, my God, listen to this. Blah, 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 blah. And everybody laugh. And then before you know it, that was the Bible. Mm -hmm. Everybody, when they told the story of Soundgarden, told the story of a fucking comic book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is what we watched happen. So you brought in another object to share with us, something so tiny I can barely see it. What is that over there? I brought in this little scrap of paper. It looks like a little square. It's very yellowed with age. It's got a an ink stain at the bottom that goes up onto it. It is perforated into four sections with pinhole perfs. It's got a little scrap of paper attached to the edge. And then it's got these numbers, like a numbering machine that printed these numbers on each little section. And then the word void was printed over it. I found that in a drawer of my parents' crap when I was a kid, a little kid, under 10 years old. And I remember finding it and just going, wow. I just thought it was the most beautiful damn thing I've ever seen. It's a scrap of paper about two inches square, inch and a half square, if. Um, it's very fragile. It's very old. It's about ready to fall apart. Um and it's, I don't even know which end is up properly because the void and the number are printed upside down from each other. So I don't even know which end is up on it. I have kept that around on display on a shelf near my workspace for pushing 60 years. And it's just, I've always just thought it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It's a piece of garbage. I, we don't even know what the hell it is. But I've shown it to other people and their reaction is, oh, that's exquisite. It's like one of those <laughs> accidental pieces of garbage that just evokes so many feelings and so many thoughts and ideas and perceptions and uh, your, your imagination runs wild with trying to define what it is. It's just this piece of junk. That's what I do. All the work I do ends up in a landfill. I'm a graphic designer. I design packaging. I design old posters. I design T-shirts. All that stuff goes to a landfill. It doesn't go to a museum. It doesn't go to an art museum. The people don't hang it on the wall and admire it as art. Well, some people pretend to. 
Most people would say, what's that piece of crap? You know, I look at it and I go, that's gorgeous. And everything about it just makes me happy to look at it. If that were hanging on a wall in a museum, I'd look at it and stare at gotcha. it. Gotcha. Okay. You know, it might be next to a Michelangelo, but the Michelangelo may not mean anything to me where that means everything to me. Uh-huh. That's what culture's about. You know, that that is where language forms. That is how we live. That is how we build the mythologies and the fantasies we live by. I mean, it's like... What did Woody Allen say that that people, human beings, are really adept at building dream houses and then moving into them? You know, well, I'm helping you with the dream houses. You know, and I'm not moving into your dream house, dude. Mm-hmm. You know, I got my own dream house, and there it is. No scrap of trash. And then also with this trash, there's like like accidents and random things that have occurred to it. And well, so certainly ha- random. Everything I ever do has a certain randomness in it. Random, ever since I discovered Duchamp back in like seventh grade. <laughs> uh, boy, that was a problem. Um, I, I've been fascinated by the idea of luck and random in these things. And I every project I do, there's something in it just for me. I have no idea how it's going to turn out. I don't know if it's going to work. But I don't tell the client about that. Can you just share like one example from all your work just to sort of illustrate that? Okay, uh, here, there is a Japanese punk band called Teen Generate. They're a garage rock band and they were coming to the Northwest and they were going to be playing. I, I did a record cover for them and stuff like that. And what we did is a, a, a gig poster where they'd had, you know, Teen Generate, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And one of the things I've worked with over the years are, were PMS inks, which are really... It was a brand name, believe it or not. It was actually a, an inking system of making color, but they also sold inks on the side. And their inks were crap. They faded in the sun really fast, particularly anything involving reds and things like that. It was just very impermanent inks. And so you'd throw up a poster on the wall, and in a sunny week in the Northwest, it would turn a different color. And I go, well, that's interesting. That's In this case, it looks awful, but in that case, the color actually looks a little better than the one I chose, you know? So what I did on this Japanese punk band, garage band, is I had a Japanese friend write in kanji, fuck you and fuck off. And I pasted it onto the artwork and covered it up with red ink. <laughs> and then the red ink fainted. <laughs> and within a week, the poster said, fuck you in Japanese. You know, the only people who understood it were Japanese kids, and they giggled. You know, nobody else got it. I mean, people still hang that up on the wall and they don't know it. So, that kind of joke. I mean, I'm always putting in things where I don't know whether the photograph's going to turn out backwards or upside down or whether the type's going to be legible. Sometimes it doesn't work. There was an Urban Outfitters campaign where you took paper and you threw it out onto the How street. How did you find out about that? I just that? read, I don't know, I just, I prepared and I just read all these random things. Okay, well. What's the story? I, I, this was for Urban Outfitters and they hired me to do a bunch of promotional stuff for their, their grunge season, you know, so they hired the grunge guy to do all the grunge stuff and they're promoting this do-it-yourself punk rock kind of image, you know, that they wanted some posters done of, you know, like a punk rock poster that promoted, I, I did a layout in the zine they made that had this picture of Johnny Rotten shouting, do it yourself. It was all glommed together with crap and garbage. Don't be an idiot, do it yourself. 
and it looked pretty good, but it was meant for a page in a newsprint magazine, and he wanted to turn it into a poster. And I just thought, well, we soak ground on a poster, it's going to look wrong, it's going to be all artistic. So what we did is up at the print shop, I came in, I said, well, let's take this poster, this image of this Johnny Rotten thing, and stick it on, what What do you got, what What kind of scrap paper you got later? I don't care, what, what do you got? And he pulled out all these pieces of paper that were left over from another print job, and they were all irregular shapes. Nothing was square. Nothing was poster-shaped or anything. And I said, cool. And we took it out in the street and threw it out in the street and let cars drive over it. Then we took it into the studio and threw it on the ground and left it there for a couple of weeks. You know, spilled ink, footprints, chunks of tape, cigarette butts, stuck on the paper. These pieces of paper just looked like they were in a garbage dump. Then we printed the image on it, and then we sent them to Urban Outfitters, and they hung them up. And it was beautiful. <laughs> I mean, that kind of stuff is like when you're cranking out, you know, crappy corporate stuff, doing something like that is like heaven, you know? It's like, wow. I'm sure you have an amazing collection of stuff because so much of your work stems from the physical objects. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I'm also a kind of a pack rat, a crap hound. I, I like stuff, so I've always surrounded myself. I think of it as research material, and it is. I use it just for that. But it's also a bunch of trash, you know. So I, I'm, I'm getting old. You know, I'm almost 70, and I've got all this stuff. <laughs> And for years, if people came to visit me at the studio, I'd just start dumping stuff under their laps. Take this. Oh, you like that? Here, take it. Oh, well, that's a cool book. Take that. You know, and they'd walk out with these armloads of crap, you know. Um, so what I finally did is I, I was contacted by a guy at the uh, Washington State Historical Archive and associated with the Washington State History Museum. Uh, they're like the collection for the History Museum. And what the guy wanted was, you know, I know you did all that punk rock poster stuff. We didn't collect any of that. We don't have any Seattle scene stuff. Do you have anything we can have for our collection? You know, the only stuff they'd collected were stuff that the guy had literally pulled off telephone poles himself as he walked to work, you know. Uh, so, I mean, their collection was, was very, very small and sort of sad. So what I started doing was I just started going through all my crap. And this doesn't even include the stuff that I personally worked on. I still need to go through that stuff. But just the stuff I had from other people and other stuff, you know, magazines, zines, books, T-shirts, you know, stuff. And uh, at last point, I had taken them four or five truckloads full of stuff. And there's thrilled oh god they were happy you know i'm giving them an old stinky t-shirt with a hole in it but it says you know the right band is on it you know it's like oh, it's a nirvana shirt you know so yeah that's what i've ended up doing with my legacy is i ended up giving it to a museum who never throws anything away these guys don't throw anything away because they never end up with duplicates of anything everything they have is so rare they're all one-offs and that's kind of fun you know i, I also uh, gave them a lot of other stuff that was for instance, I had a collection of Black Panther wanted posters from the 60s that I had pulled off post office walls when I was a little kid. You know, I had Angela Davis and Eldridge Cleaver and H. Rat Brown. I also had the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army stuff. And I gave them that, and they just about went through the floor. They go, oh, 
are these real? Oh, yeah. I pulled them out myself. <laughs> and they were just like, they even started a little uh, site on their website they call the Art Chantry Collection. And they've started scanning the junk I brought them and they're posting it on their website under the Art Chantry Collection. Wonderful. You know? wow. And it's like they, the first one they did was Angela Davis and H. Rap Brown and Eldridge Cleaver. You know, that feels good. Plus, you know, my stuff's in museums all over the world. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm proud of it. Wouldn't you be? You know, I've, I've had a one-man career retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I've had shows in the Smithsonian. My stuff's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I want a bronze lion at Cannes. My stuff, I've been published in over 500 books. My work has been in over 500 books. Mm. You know, I may die, but those books will survive in some fashion. You know, it's like my legacy is, is secured. We touched earlier on the distinction art between graphic design and fine art. Can you expand on that a little more? Well, I don't think my stuff looks right when it's framed. I mean, the stuff was designed to be thrown on a wall with a bunch of other scrappy, torn-up posters. you never all by yourself. It's always on a wall in Seattle. I mean, you had to learn how to compete. That became part of your aesthetic. I can compete on a wall of posters. Mm. You know, most people can't because they've never even thought about that, you know? So, the, I mean, the posters I have seen in my, when I see it in the wild out in the, its natural environment, it's been rained on, so it's kind of wrinkly. It might have creosote stains from the telephone poles. There's staples all over it. Maybe it's a little torn. Maybe it's partly covered up by another poster, you know. Maybe somebody's graffitied it. Uh, duct tape is wonderful. Just that, any kind of big chunks of tape is just wonderful. And that's the way they're supposed to look. That's what I designed for. That's the environment they look their very best in. When you take it and put it inside of a sterile environment like an art gallery with, a, with pure white walls and hand-washed floors and a, enclosed frames under glass on a wall mounted so you can't remove it. And it's a punk rock poster. It's like taking, you know, a piece of toilet paper and, and putting it in an art museum. You know, it's like... That's, that just doesn't belong here. And no matter what they say about intrinsic art, folk art, or whatever you want to start calling this stuff, it's wrong. <laughs> so when I see my work in museums, my first thought is like, oh, God, look at that. I'm in a museum, you know? And then I look at it and I go, but that just doesn't look right. Why does it look like that? And I go, oh, they framed it. Oh, oh, okay, whatever. You know, that's end of story. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's one of the conundrums of doing what I'm doing. I'm a graphic designer whose work is as close as you can get to the fine art world, but not be a fine artist. And don't you dare ever call me an artist because I find that insulting. You know, graphic design is much harder, much, much harder. Right? They, all artists seem to think that they can do graphic design just because they're artists. And it's just so untrue. It's like having a... I often compare artists and designers as doctors and dentists, you know. Doctors and dentists, they wear white lab coats. They have pens in their pockets. They usually have glasses. They have stethoscopes. They have nurses. They have these offices full of all this chrome equipment and all that stuff. They even call themselves doctors, right? But I don't think I'd want my dentist doing brain surgery on me, right? And conversely, I sure don't want a brain surgeon working on my dentistry. <laughs> and that's the problem here because it's an entirely different dialogue 
medium function purpose. And to try and say that, you know, it's art is to miss the point a thousand percent. Art, fine art emerged from the graphic design, the commercial art world, you know. We were around first. Art emerged out of us, you know. You go to take graphic design classes at a college. They didn't even start offering graphic design until the late 60s as a subject. Graphic design didn't – the word didn't exist until the mid-60s. I mean it existed, but it wasn't in common use. It was commercial art. The way you learned commercial art was in those little ads in the back of Popular Mechanics magazine. Be a sign painter, you know. That's the secret brotherhood of graphic design right there. Art? <laughs> You know, they teach graphic design in art classes in colleges and universities. And the way they teach it is kind of like a voc option, voc vocational option. If you're going to be an artist, you're going to be hurting for money. So if you take learn graphics design, you can make a living on the side and then do, do your artwork in the full time. The truth is that just never works. The, the translation is too big. And after a day of grinding out graphic design projects, the last thing you want to do is work on your paintings. Guaranteed. You will stop painting, you know, if you try it. And if you try to be an artist that dabbles in graphic design, you'll fail miserably because everything you do will be rejected. Clients have the right to reject what you're doing because they're paying for it. You know, try to live that way and be an artist, and, you know. But everybody is a graphic designer. We all understand this language. You walk into a grocery store, what are we looking at? Are we really looking at products? No, we're looking at packaging. And that's graphic design. And that language far predates the fine art dialogue. And it goes all the way back to the very first images that uh, primitive man ever used. Those were graphic design. That was not fine art. It was not for decoration. It was functional art. It had a point, a purpose. It was used. And when it was used, it was thrown away. It was ignored. You never saw it again. The reason that the animals in the caves look abstract is because they were trying to capture the spirit of the animal and not... Um, they could do very, very good renderings very accurate renderings of the animals. But these were abstract because they were the spirits of the animals. And they'd do it way down in a cave where nobody ever went except the shamans. And they'd have a ritual where they would hunt the spirit of the animal. And you can see spear and arrow chips in the drawings and the paintings if you look carefully. That's where they shot it. And then the next day, the, the hunters would go out on their hunt and they will have already killed the spirit ritually of the animal so that when you kill the spirit or the actual animal, you wouldn't be offending the zeitgeist for better, lack of a better. So it had a functional, uh, that yeah. art had a and function. And then it was thrown away like a beer can and never looked at again. The fact that we look at it through the eyes of, oh, it's such beautiful abstract art. No, no, no. That's not what it was at all. No, no, not any more than a beer can laying in a ditch is fine art. You know, it's like, it. it's a very, my language that I practice, that everybody understands and everybody reads, but nobody knows they do, you know, it goes way back. And all this stuff that I do and all the stuff I'm talking about here is all dealing with that screwing around with the viewer. I mean, we, sure, we do it for clients because, you know, that's the American way. I mean, if we could do it for free, we'd do it for free. But we do it for clients. So we're trying to, at the client's request, create something that changes somebody's thinking 
basically it might be, you know, this can looks delicious. It, that delicious food on the can, I'm going to buy that. Oh, that frozen food container is terrific looking. It looks delicious. I'm going to buy that, you know. Uh, different Certain colors work. Green always works, but not on fresh food. You can't put it on, like, packaging for processed food because it looks like mold. And our mind has a negative connotation. Our mind plays all these games. It's a very complex language. It's not simple. Um, so what it's my job to do is for the client is to get that message for the client out there and get the person looking at it to buy the product or go to the concert or even worse, vote for this candidate. Basically, I'm using this language to fuck with your head. Remind fuckers. And that's what we do. And that makes us very, nobody likes those people. You know, graphic designers are kind of beloved and despised simultaneously. I ask our guests to always share a place they care about in the Northwest. Or is there a place that comes to mind for you? I care place? about a place in the Northwest? Yeah, a place here. Everything's bulldozed. There's nothing left in the <laughs> Northwest. It's all condos full of these icky twits. I mean, Jesus, they're all the same age. You go down the street in Seattle and everybody's the same age bracket. There's no children. There's no old people. The only children and old people you see are in the homeless camps. It's ridiculous. What happened to this town? <laughs> God, it's awful. <laughs> All you people who still live here, why? <laughs> so do you mind sharing a little bit about this upcoming book on Estrus? For about the last 35 years, I've worked a lot with a little record label called Estrus Records. They're actually based in Bellingham, Washington. Run out of a guy's house by him and his wife. You a know. friend of yours, right? And yeah, I first started working with him back in the late 80s and uh, we became fast friends because we had so much in common. For instance, he studied to be an archaeologist when he first went to school and so did I, you know? And so we just basically all love, both absolutely adored trash culture and, you know, old monster magazines and terrible records and out-of-tune guitars and cars that look like hell. And, you know, basically we're total trash hounds. We just love this crap, you know. Anything that looks like a historical artifact from Mars is definitely up our alley. And the music that uh, Dave put out on Estrus Records was basically based around Garage rock, garage rock, surf music, hot rod music, out of tune Japanese rock and roll, Mexican rock and roll from the mid 60s, uh, one hit wonders. These are bands that are everywhere in the entire world, not just in Seattle, not just in, you know, name your city. The scene around Serestos is worldwide. Bands from all over the world, places as far away as, as Belgium and, and, Brazil and, and Tokyo and New Zealand and Sweden, plus, you know, a lot of bands out of Bellingham. And their, the music, it became really super popular when the movie Pulp Fiction came out uh, because they took all that music and used it in there. But that's the stuff that Estrus was putting out. And some of it was reissue, but most of it was like these weirdo bands from obscure places. Uh, there's one, for instance, from Auburn, Alabama, a college town. And this was the local, every college town can support one good band. This was a band called Man or Astro Man. And they're from outer space. And they're addicted to spy movies, uh, snack cakes, and television in general. They perform on stage with televisions on their head, and they play instrumental surf music. 
and show old movies while they play. They are amazing. They should they would be internationally famous if they were on Sub Pop. But they're not. They're on Asterisk and fuck you. You know, <laughs> and that is the way the mummies, the monomen, uh, the the makers, the mortals, uh, bands like Southern Culture on the Skids. So you've created a gajillion album covers and I, posters. And, I didn't do all of them. But some know, of them. But I, oh, I I did the lion's share. Yeah. And I was also close enough to Dave that I I he and he and I would talk and he would listen. So I got to influence a lot of this stuff too. And what's the title of the book? The title of the book is called Estrus Records, Shoveling the Shit Since 1987. And it's basically the history of Estrus Records is crammed full of my, what I think is my very best work because it was so free. Mm. I mean, there's pictures of naked ladies exploding hot rods. Well, really, what else is there, you know? Naked ladies and exploding hot rods are the only thing I really care about. <laughs> well, there we have it. Thank you very much for being our guest. Later. Later, Bob. To learn more about Art Chantry, visit artchantry.com. Join us next time for the second of a series on the B&I Circus Store of Lakewood, Washington. Our guest will be Larry Johnston, owner of the B&I Pet Store and Zoo. And during its heyday, the zoo's evolving menagerie included elephants, seals, lions, tropical parrots, and of course, a Western lowland gorilla named Ivan. Thanks to a recent Disney film based on a novel by Kathleen Applegate, Ivan remains a source of fascination for kids the world over. And so for our next episode, we'll hear from local children together with Earl Boger, president of the Ivan Foundation. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther with photography by Travis Lawton. Administrative support from Mary Mansour and theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway. Special thanks to Tim Kerr of the Lord High Fixers, Jimbo of King Generate, Trent Wayne of The Mummies, and Michael Maker of The Makers for additional music used in this episode. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories. 